You You are are now now listening listening to Clothes on Sunday, a UCYM podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Clothes on Sunday. This is a podcast where we discuss Catholic topics from a young adult perspective. Today, we are looking at Black History Month and reflecting on the leadership of individuals like Father Augustus Tolton. To help us understand Tolton more deeply, we are joined today by Bishop Joseph Perry, who is one of the auxiliary bishops of the Archdiocese of Chicago. We are also diving a bit into the major Black theology concepts that surround the field to highlight the reason for a separate branch from theology. To help us understand this section of the conversation, we are joined by Samuel Carlson, our former Associate Director of Young Adult Life and Engagement for UCYM, who is now working in Seattle as a theology instructor. Lastly, we will will be discussing the types of Black celebrations and events that are held at Evanston parishes, such as St. Nick's. To help us understand the history of of Evanston area Black Catholics and activities in the recent years, we have Yvonne Smith, leader of Evanston area Black Catholics, former CBS teacher and member of several social justice groups. Thank you for joining us today, Bishop Perry. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Sam. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today, Yvonne. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Of course. We are going to begin our open conversation with the history of Father Augustus Tolton by asking Bishop Harry some questions about Tolton's life and leadership. So, uh, Bishop Harry, can you please start us off by giving us a bit about uh, or a bit of summary about Tolton's life? Well, Tolton comes to us from the 19th century. Um, His life is uh, surrounded by the events moving up to our country's civil war. And uh, his life was lived in the aftermath of that, in his young manhood and adulthood. But given the hardships that were somehow dictated to Blacks at that time in history, um, he was nine years old when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln. But um, the country really, at least the government, or at least Abraham Lincoln himself, had not imagined any sort of... um, process or program of assimilation of freed Blacks who were not allowed to have education. Many of them did not know how to read or write, how to assimilate them within society. These freed Blacks, and to say nothing of those who had run away and became refugees from their bondage and slavery, they were left to be treated pretty haphazardly in the American society of that time that ordered um, separation of the races of black and black and white. So he was born into slavery because his parents were slaves already. After the death of uh, the man who owned them, he and his wife, Martha Jane, who was Augustus's mother, plotted an escape. Uh, Tolton's life was pretty much a feature of um, the word no. A lot of society spat the word no into his face more often than not. He couldn't do this, he couldn't do that because he was black. He was kicked out of St. Boniface School because of an uprising by the parents of the school children. And then uh, feeling a, a call to go out to go to seminary, he couldn't enter any seminary in this country because seminaries in those days did not receive black students. So a group of um, Franciscan friars the ones who have St. Peter's Church downtown in the Loop, the Sacred Heart Province, uh, maneuvered some connections they had with their superiors in Rome who got him into a seminary in Rome. And he studied the required six years of study there when he was ordained on the 24th of April, 1886, with his class. His experience in Rome was entirely different than it was here in the United States because Rome is a very cosmopolitan city. And all of his classmates, they were either from Africa or South America or the Pacific or the Eastern churches or whatever. So it was a positive, positive experience for him. And he excelled in many ways, including learning how to speak fluent Italian and, of course, working with the Latin language. They were going to send him to Africa to become a missionary because it was figured that he couldn't be a success here in this country by reason of our apartheid. He was learning dialects, African dialects, and and preparing himself emotionally, psychologically to make that transition, realizing that he would never see his mother and sister again. But the night before he was ordained, the cardinal prefect of the um, propagation of the faith in Rome took Tolton aside and 
and told him that he had changed the uh, orders for where he would have his first mission site. Instead of sending him to Africa, they're going to send him back to the United States uh, to be a, a missionary amongst his own people and this situation, post-war situation here. Unbeknownst to the Cardinal, he was expressing a lot of hope and confidence in Tolton, but at the same time, kind of fashioning the cross upon which Tolton would be nailed once he got back here. Um, he proved something of a, a great sensation while he was here. People had never seen a Roman collar on the neck of a black man before. In fact, they thought it was pretty impossible. So he got a mixed reaction from people. From the black community, he was a new sensation. And he was sent first to uh, pastor a small group of uh, black Catholics and refugees and ex-slaves at a St. Joseph's Church there in Quincy, downtown Quincy, Illinois. And then, then there was a, uh, a number of whites who began sneaking into his church to attend his masses, which was not very much appreciated by fellow ministers and fellow priests, because the races did not mix. They did not mix socially. They did not mix in church. They did not mix in many other ways. So complaints about him were taken to the local bishop. The local bishop wasn't terribly on his side at all. He would reprimand him and warn him that if he couldn't get his act together, it would be best that he leave town. Things came to a head by the two and a half year mark of his priesthood in Quincy. He began writing letters to Rome for permission to find another bishop. And that took really a couple years because of the nature of snail mail in those days having to be taken over by ships and so forth. The Archbishop of Chicago at that time, a Southern gentleman by the name of Patrick Fian, who was originally from Nashville, Tennessee, but he was the first Archbishop of Chicago. He invited Tolton to come to Chicago and work with a group of fledgling Black Catholics downtown at what is today Old St. Mary's Church in Ninth and Wabash. And after a year or so, he gave uh, Tolton permission to lay plans for building a church for Black Catholics. And he made uh, Tolton kind of the vicar of all Blacks in the city at that time. So he began laying plans. The Archbishop purchased some land at 36th and Dearborn Street. And some benefactors came forth with some monies. And um, that church was never quite completed by the time that Tolton died on July 9th, 1897. He was 43 years of age. He was getting off of a train coming from a retreat. You know where the Meyer Center is? Well, that was the train station. It used to be there in what is our parking lot. And it was a very hot day in Chicago. In fact, over the course of days, he had to walk 10 blocks from the station to get to his rectory. And then he collapsed at the corner of 36th and Ellis Street. And they rushed him to Mercy Hospital. And after about eight hours, uh, he succumbed. Uh, he died of heat stroke and uremia. So that in a capsule, that's kind of a capsule glimpse of, of his short life. Thank you very much for that. Um, I have some follow-up questions, if I may. That's all right with sure. you. Yes. Mm -hmm. So one question for me, I'm trying to pick the most interesting one that I can choose. How do you think that Tolton maintained love for God despite experiencing extreme suffering brought upon his enslavement? How did he do that? Yes. I think a, a lot of it had to do with his innate disposition. Uh, much of his spirituality seems to have been cultured by his mother, who um, once they arrived on the shore of the Illinois side after that daring escape, she took her three children in her arms and she told them that they were free now and, and to never forget the goodness of the Lord. And she kind of prodded him with his early years trying to... Um, encourage him even despite some of the negative stuff that was thrown in him as a kid and as a young man. The other was the example of the sisters and the priests who tutored him privately when he couldn't go to school. Uh, these were visionary clergy and religious who were looking into the future and they thought that Tolton might be able to help chart that future for his own people, given what wasn't there to help 
Blacks at that time in history. And they felt that, you know, in order for people to be somehow ministered to effectively, they needed to have clergy of their own ethnic stripe. And they thought Tolton possibly could do that. But then, of course, there were all kinds of obstacles trying to get him into a school, into a seminary. He had a gentle spirit about him, really believed that the church was really the only institution to be of any assistance to the Black man at that time. There wasn't much else. There were no charities and organizations, welfare or otherwise, to assist people. You either lived or died by your own efforts in those days, post-Civil War and thereafter. Thank you, Bishop Perry. Um, I know that currently uh, Father Augustus Tolton is venerable, Augustus Tolton, as he is going through uh, the canonization process for sainthood. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, what does it take to reach the different stages of canonization? What has Tolton done um, that you're fighting for to get him the title of St. Augustus Tolton? Well, the process starts out with um, the establishment of a historical commission and a theological commission. Uh, historical commission is made up of archivists, historians, and researchers who put together the dossier on the individual person's life who was a candidate. The only thing I can, can compare it to is doing a doctoral dissertation on someone's life because everything you have to say about the person you have to justify. So there's an awful lot of footnotes there because the church doesn't quite tolerate legend or folklore about an individual large stories or exaggerations. You want simply the facts, <laughs> nothing but the facts. And for Tolton, that took us about five years to put together, uh, starting in 2010. And we sent the dossier, it was about three and a half, 4,000 pages of documents and uh, testimony and uh, other kinds of things that somehow grafted together everything we could find on him that was in newspapers, there were speeches that he gave or people who knew him at the time and, and so forth. That process starting out with the two commissions, the historical commission, which does the research, the theological commission, which argues his virtues, extracts from all that historical research, what seems to be the Christian qualities that would move the Holy Father to name him a saint and therefore an example for other Christians to live, live by. Uh, we sent that over in uh, 2000, September of 2014, we sent the dossier over. At that time, he was a servant of God. It took Rome another four years to examine all of that material and ask some further questions. So I was in constant contact with him uh, on those four years. And then the cardinals and the archbishops who are members of the Congregation for Causes of Saints have to put in their votes after the historical commission and the theological commission members have their votes. And all that is collated together and the prefect of the congregation decides whether this is worthy enough to present to the Pope. And they did that in May of 2019. In June 11th, of 2019, the Holy Father was presented with the cause and he declared him venerable, which means that this individual lived a life of heroic virtue for the times within which they live. And then the next steps is trying to find God's stamp of approval on all this with the medical phenomenon of healing that science cannot explain. And that's the, the juncture where we are at right now. So we ask your prayers for that. Thank you, Bishop Perry. Does anyone else, perhaps one of our other guests, have a question for Bishop Perry? Um, yeah, so I'm wondering, so actually I just finished um, reading his biography. I forget who the author of it is, but- um, From Slave I, Priest? I'm sorry? Yes, I think so. Sister um, Caroline Hemisath. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I want to make sure, she, you know, credit goes to where it's due. Uh, so I'm wondering, um, so something that struck me when I was reading it was just his capacity for endurance 
Uh, and for fortitude, I mean, I think anything he was called to, he had to wait a while for it to come to fruition. And I was just wondering, kind of on that note, you said the Theological Commission kind of highlights particular virtues. What were the virtues that they identified in, um, in Augustine Tolton's life? One was um, perseverance, another was courage, another was outright devotion, um, his purity of life, his uh, endurance, as you mentioned, under suffering was another, his charity, his outreach to others, despite being constantly knocked down with his priestly service to people. You know, priests are ordained to, to serve everybody or anybody who comes for ministrations or the sacraments. But in those days, it was, there was a, a dividing line. And you couldn't do that if you were the wrong race. You couldn't enter another person's territory in that sense. Um, the priest who was, I guess, his nemesis would always um, accuse uh, the whites who went to the church that they were somehow traitors or, or whatever, and that the money they put in Tilton's church really belonged in the white church. And he would use the N-word all the time and just spread just venom around the, the town, that small town about Tolton making him into a something of a, I don't know, a monster, which he wasn't. That's how people behaved in those days. Though the issues with race aren't as um, maybe extreme as they were in the past, how do you, how do you see race continuing to affect the, the Catholic Church and, and, and the Catholic people in general? And in today's age, I suppose there there could be a number of opinions on this, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, some people say that some of the extremes are showing themselves again. Mm -hmm. That um, they pop up here and there. When you consider uh, what happened to black people by way of extreme behavior, some of that has translated into other extreme kinds of behavior yes uh, you know, prosecution without due process uh, murders uh, uh, unjustifiable actions by uh, law enforcement uh, discrimination in housing in certain jobs uh, the white supremacist renaissance that is running right now that uh, somehow pops its ugly head here and there, not against just just blacks, but against anybody who's not Caucasian. Uh, so people of Hispanic heritage, Asian heritage, Middle Eastern heritage, all those people are grouped together as the enemy of white people by these extremists. Uh, they have an audience uh, largely on the internet, and um, it happens. Uh, people burst into churches and kill people having Bible study, or Jews having their religious services. Um, um, it shows its ugly head in different kinds of manifestations, but it's it's all of it is what you would say. I would call it satanic. It's a problem. They they call it the American original sin because we've never solved. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. England got rid of the slave trade in 1807. We carried it on for another 100 years. It morphed into racial segregation and, and discrimination. We didn't see any relief with that until the 1960s. But then there are other, you can, the list is long. You can yes, talk about it all yes. night. Yeah. And speaking of just the, the longer list and more modern times, Moving forward in the conversation, uh, we can talk about more specific uh, and major concepts in Black theology, and that's why we have Sam here to facilitate that conversation. Um, the first, the first thing really being, what uh, what is Black theology, and and for anyone that would like to pitch in. Yeah. So um, thanks for having me on. Um, Black theology uh, is really just an effort for African-American people um, to embrace their identity as Black people and embrace it within the context of being uh, the people of God. Um, 
as I, as I think Bishop Perry was kind of speaking to um, and talking about kind of contemporary issues, um, but also talking about, you know, Augustus Tolton's life, you know, so much of the, the history of Christianity, right? Um, simply because of the kind of accidents of history uh, of it kind of coming through Europe, right? Has kind of this kind of relationship with, or this tension with um, the supremacy of European culture, right? And so black theology is kind of trying to kind of distill it, I guess, and trying to get to the root of, you know, what is, you know, what does it mean to be authentically Christian? Uh, and then what does it mean to be, uh, or maybe faithfully Christian would be better. What does it mean to be faithfully Christian while also kind of being authentically black or authentically uh, African-American? Sam, I have a, another question for you, if I may, to connect kind of a previous topic we were talking about. How can you mm -hmm. connect Tolkien's leadership to black theology? Yeah, so I think, um, I, I mean, as I was saying, I think his endurance is really um, powerful. I was talking to my girlfriend um, a couple months ago. It was actually kind of what led me to um, Sister Caroline's book. And I was kind of talking about, you know, certain frustrations I had or certain tensions or difficulties that I was going through about, you know, experiences that I was having in the church. Um, and it's not things that are like overtly, you know, racist, but things just like that were diminishing, right, the value of the, the African experience in the life of the church, right? And she was like, go to Tolton, right? Like, this is what, this is why we have the saints, right, is their, their model and their example. Um, and I hadn't thought about it before, because I mean, Tolton, it's funny, the, the kind of quick biographies we get of Tolton, oftentimes, it's like, he was the first Black Catholic priest, and you're like, cool, great, but they don't talk about, like, the depth of what, um, it took to bring that to fruition, right? Uh, and so as I was reading it, I was really moved by his perseverance, his faith, the ups and downs that came with that. He had been just, he had wanted to be a priest. He had been called to be a priest, you know, I think in his teenage years, if I'm not mistaken. And um, really, I don't think went to Rome until like his 20s or late 20s. If, I mean, <laughs> Bishop Perry, correct me if I my numbers are inaccurate there, but that's that's a long time to to really feel a calling and to kind of just be patient and wait wait it out, um, or even wanting to get Saint Monica's off the ground, right? I think it took a lot out of him to to not only be the pastor of a parish, which if anybody of you you know if you ever get to know uh, a pastor, you know that like that can be <laughs> that can be its own you know real you know, draining ministry. I don't mean to that in a negative way, just like it takes a lot out of you. Um, but then also to kind of raise the money and to meet the needs of these people who hadn't had a, a priest care for them in, in, you know, for many people, almost a decade. It, 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 his, his devotion and his endurance through suffering, I think is something that certainly we can look to as a model, especially as we you know, in, in society, right. When we look at the world and we say, you know, how long has it been since, since Dr. King, how long has it been since, you know, Medgar Evers and all of these folks have really tried to push things forward. And why have, are we not seeing the effects that we were kind of promised as, you know, when we read these stories uh, about these people as children, I think the endurance of Tolton, right. Speaks a lot to um, the ways in which our faith and our God, right. Um, can ground us in the work that, that is necessary to keep things going. One aspect of Tolton, to follow up on what you're saying, Sam, that I think is uh, revealing of his, his character was that he asked his mother that if anything happened to him, he was to be buried in Quincy and not Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, despite everything that happened to him in Quincy, he was willing to be laid to rest back in that town, which he had a lot of affection for, but people kept sending him mixed signals. I mean, he could have left the church. He could have become an alcoholic. He could have picked up a woman somewhere, but no, he stuck with it. Uh, and I think that's part of the uh, superlatives that, that, um, that are listed about him. Do we have the same tolerance rates today? I sometimes wonder. I don't think we would tolerate half of what he went through. But back in those days, if anybody would have an ounce of survival at all, they had to push through uh, because there, there, weren't, there wasn't much to hang on to back then. 
people couldn't scream their rights. You had no rights mm -hmm. to have anyone represent what you thought were your rights back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think his faith in God, I, I must admit I have not read the bi biography. I, I need to do that. But what I hear about him just goes to show us that um, when we walk with God, God walks with us. Mm -hmm. And all when I think of all of the accounts I have of what happened to enslaved people in this country, I sometimes wonder how did we survive at all? And here I am, here is Bishop Perry and the other um, black folks that you see in our country. So there's obviously a spirit in many cases, it's the faith that was developed within us and in some cases um, hoodwinked into adopting Christianity, but mm -hmm. there's something within that spirit that helps us to move forward, helps us to continue to um, recognize that we have something that's important and that we wanna live if only for our children. And that keeps us going. It keeps, keeps us as a people continuing to move forward. Bible thumping slave masters who had their their slaves baptized or allowed them to have some semblance of uh, religious worship or whatever, a number of them uh, would tear out of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, so that slaves would not find there any ratio or theological justification for their freedom. Mm -hmm. That happened rather frequently. Mm. Imagine receiving the... <laughs> and there's a big section that seems to be torn out of there. <laughs> so, that's what they did. Yeah, I was just going to say, when it comes to, um, Ivana, I think you raised a great point of like, how did, you know, our ancestors endure, right, mm -hmm. these, these great struggles that come from slavery, right? Um, and my instinct was to be like the same way the Hebrews did, right? Like, um that sense of even though and I, I this is one of the things that I I kind of balk at when people you know say you know the white man's religion or kind of you know Christian slave owners like you can't own slaves and like preach the God like it's, it's like it's a contradiction mm -hmm, terms, mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um but right that there was I mean God has a preferential option for the poor for the downtrodden for the afflicted mm -hmm. right that um, his blessing is particularly concerned about those who are abandoned by the world. And so I do think that to some extent, right, like there, there's a spirit that's, that's communicated yeah. that Christianity is um, instinctually understood by those who are on the bottom, so to speak. And it's brought to life in the midst of that. Uh, something that you said that, that like the, the white man's religion, um, brought up a question that you know runs across my mind every now and then of um, you know in terms of black theology and and not even just black theology but being Christian and Catholic um, mm -hmm. when you're not white um, how does how does the image uh, that is always portrayed of Christ and of God affect the way that you you go about and and think about Christianity and Catholicism and the beliefs that are taught mm -hmm. and if that affects any of you guys or if if you do through your sp spirituality have your own sense of this image that you have of god and christ i mean i think we have to remember that like if christ has any kind of cultural origin right that it's not necessarily a european one right that christ is a a Jewish person, right, is an Israelite. And I know that not to get into, you know, hot topics of the day, right? Um, but there is, I mean, there is a distinction between, you know, Jewish identity and European identity, right? Mm -hmm. Just to kind of be clear about that, especially at that time, right? That, you know, a Jewish person and a Roman person or a Greek person are not the same thing at all, mm -hmm. right? Um, that doesn't mean that the message and mission of Christ isn't a universal message and mission and can't be applied universally, which includes European culture, right? So like, by all means, right? Like European Christianity should be a celebrated thing. It should be a, you know, a rich and beautiful thing, right? But it's not the only 
uh, way in which to celebrate Christianity, that the message of universal salvation, the message that uh, the God of the universe is a God of love who cares about each individual particularly, um, the message that we receive on Pentecost, right, that the Holy Spirit speaks through, right, each language and each culture and isn't limited um, and I mean, that's a radical concept at the time, right? At the time, right? It was, you know, your God was localized, right? Your God was going to be the God of Evanston or the God of Chicago. And if I were to move to Seattle, I'd worship the God of Seattle, right? But this concept that God is, is everybody's God and somehow that can be spoken through different cultural realities is a transformative event in history. So I, I think just kind of, a reminder there, right, that, that there's no one culture or one, um, you know, ethnicity or race that owns the message and mission of Christ, mm-hmm. um, and that it takes form and it takes root in a variety of expressions and ways. And wanting to claim that, right, and reclaim that, I think that's what kind of keeps me going in the midst of, um, as you say, right, kind of this, this challenge that comes from the realities of history. Yeah, it's uh, what you say is very, very true, Sam. Um, the universal message of the Christian faith is somehow has to be captured. It's, it's sinners who manipulate that message for their own ends and have done so throughout history. So much so that certain people unawares can somehow identify evil acts with the Christian message. Mm-hmm. And that, that would be heresy. The Christian faith is the only faith on the face of the earth that was non-ethnic defined. (laughs) To put it in other words, um, it was meant for everyone, beginning with the coming of the Magi, all these different men who came from the East with their gifts, and then Paul summons to go out and to preach the message to non-Jews, to Gentiles, and who are the Gentiles? You and I. Anyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile. You know, so that's yeah. Yeah, I like that that clarification of the the reality of the actions of like just because a Christian does a certain action doesn't make the action a Christian action, right? That um mm-hmm. and that reminder, right? That um the oh gosh. I don't I can't think of the word, but there's a term that kind of describes the church where um that the church is inspired and is holy, right? But it doesn't mean that its individual members aren't flawed. Right, and that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. I think it's also important for us to remember that Christ came to change the world that he was born into. He came to change the order, to recognize the poor, to recognize the marginalized. And I think that's something that also appeals to people of color, you know, since white supremacy raises them to be the ones who make decisions and are the captains of industry. But those who are truly Christian recognize that that Christ came to to present something different to the world. For those who have been marginalized to realize that Christ is here for them. Christ is here for all of us, yes, but to recognize that the marginalized need to be lifted. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. I want to share something with, with you guys that I remember as a, as a child. Um, my father's parents were Catholic, so I am a cradle Catholic. Um, my grandmother was a cook. They lived in Washington, D.C., and she developed glaucoma. So as a child, I remember I couldn't stand on the side of her because her peripheral vision was uh, deteriorating. And she firmly believed that if she was brought holy water from Lourdes, that her sight would be cured. And, you know, as a child, I thought, well, then we have to get grandma some holy water from Lourdes. And then, you know, as an adult, now I realized, but what a faith she had, that that was something she held on to. And she lived to be in her late 80s. Um, so when we talk about the faith that, that African-Americans have, that, that our, our ancestors had to um, follow Jesus, to follow the church, there's a faith there that's unshakable for many of us. And yeah, and yeah having been over some of the, the broader 
topics, um, we can start to look at the, the intersection of, you know, the black identity and the Catholic faith. Um, even like in our own local area of Evanston and uh, Yvonne, uh, you are the one that really, really takes the cake when it comes to all of that, you know, Evanston. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what does that intersection of the black identity and the Catholic faith look like nowadays in, in Evanston? Well, while we don't have um, a church that's predominantly black or a congregation that's predominantly black, I think that St. Nicholas historically um, has been a very welcoming parish, has been a place where I've certainly felt welcome to, to worship and to um, make sure that my children went through religious education at, um, at St. Nicholas. Um, I moved here in 1994 from New Jersey and looked around at um, the three Catholic churches that are in Evanston, St. Athanasius, St. Mary's, and um, St. Nick's. And St. Nick's just struck me as, as the place that I fit in that was the most comfortable to me. Evanston Area Black Catholic was, full, was founded by um, a, a wonderful woman, Margot Butler, Marguerite Butler. Um, I don't know what year she began it, but she invited me. She saw me in church with my, my three children and my husband and um, welcomed me, welcomed us, and invited us to attend some meetings that, that she was holding at her house. It was a group of people in the Evanston area, uh, folks that she knew from Chicago, folks that she knew in um, Lake County as well. So, so Margot was, was an amazing woman. She knew everybody. <laughs> And um, she, she extended herself. I mean, for someone, you know, a stranger to come up, introduce herself to me and, and welcome my family and say, you know, I'd like you to come over to the house and meet some folks. And so that was the beginning of, for me, Evanston Area Black Catholics. And I would say maybe um, this organization was, and was, was running for at least, at least three, to, three to five years at that point. We sat and we discussed, sometimes we, um, we have religious discussions. Sometimes it was just making people aware of activities that were going on in Chicago that were focused around Black Catholics. Um, I became aware that there were churches on the South Side where the congregation was, you know, 99% African American. And that's something I, I had only experienced as a child because I grew up in Harlem, New York, where the church that I grew up in was, was Black and, and Puerto Rican for the most part. Uh, but after I left, um, Harlem, most of the churches I attended were multicultural. Um, when my parents moved to the Bronx, there were Italians, there were Irish, um, there were Puerto Ricans, and then there were Black families. So after leaving Harlem, any other Black church that I attended was not strictly a Black church. So having Margot welcome me was was um, something I, I enjoyed and something that um, Sort of spoke to my heart and maybe spoke to something that I needed at, at that point. She was the first one to introduce um, Kwanzaa at St. Nick's and that was in 1999 and we have celebrated Kwanzaa every Christmas since that point. Um, initially just deciding how it would be set up. Um, I don't think they, there was much difficulty in getting um, I think Father Oldershaw was the pastor at that time to agree to incorporate this. Now, Kwanzaa is not a religious ceremony. It's not a religious holiday, but we found a way of creating a very special celebration, recognizing um, the culture of the African-American community and integrating it into the Catholic mass. So the candle lighting, for the seven days of Kwanzaa occurs before the mass begins. But then through music, through homily, um, during the early years, we had um, dancers who also presented some movements so that we could see that this mass was going to be something very different, something very joyful and yeah. showing African-American culture. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, uh, could you take us through uh, what, what is Kwanzaa? Well, what does it celebrate? Kwanzaa and the seven principles of Kwanzaa are taken, are taken from the first fruits celebration during the harvest. So the symbols are that of, of fruit, 
candles being lit similar to maybe the candles for um, Hanukkah, each day representing a particular principle. It's the idea that the family is important, that we have the ability to um, have businesses of our own, to name ourselves and our children, to recognize that um, we can contribute, that we have faith. Those are some of the principles that just off the top of my head that we are celebrating in each of the days of Fonzo. Yvonne, if you don't mind me asking you, how have you seen uh, white Evanston parishioners react to these uh, black celebrations at, during masses or just in general outside of masses? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it mixed? I think, well, I'm, I'm going to address it initially by the, the black population at our church, and we accept it um, in a very positive way. Um, I think there are some that maybe think, well, you know, it's, it's not very important. It isn't something today that is widely celebrated among African-Americans. Um, when I was in college, I definitely celebrated it with, with my friends. We've had the ceremony of the mass usually at 4.30 on Saturday, which is not really a, a, a service that's very well attended. So in that sense, we're not, I don't know if this is quite the right, it's not being overbearing and saying we're going to take over the nine o'clock mass and we're going to make this, this mass is going to be now an hour and a half rather than the usual hour. So I think those people who attend are people who have accepted um, the style of worship. The music that we use, that we celebrate is quite different than our standard mass. Um, the Holy Angels Choir has come to celebrate with us for several years and their service, the style of, of music is primarily gospel. Um, not, it's not a totally gospel um, worship space, but primarily gospel. And we can see that there's a spirit, there's a joy. Um, I think those who are there and who purposely come want to be part of that service. I've never received any negative comments, except that sometimes it's a little long <laughs> because uh, <laughs> it tends to be longer than just the, the 60 minute mass. But I think listening to the principles and the prayers that go along with that help the congregation to see that um, there is a biblical reference from, for each of the seven principles. And when you hear the combination of those references along with the prayer, it brings it to another level that this is not just a secular celebration, that it can be a celebration where our faith and the things that are important to us as people and important to us as Catholics and as Christians can be part of this as well. And we always have a wonderful dinner afterward. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just want to say, this is kind of off topic, but it oh, I always find it funny, um, the like time requirement of mass that people have. <laughs> like if it's an hour and a half, it's too long. Yeah. Um, this is one of the things as a convert, I don't quite, understand i grew up in church of god in christ which is a pentecostal tradition um and that you'd be there like all day right like if <laughs> you got there at nine and you left at like one like something happened like it was a short week right <laughs> you know <laughs> you were there for like several hours you know praising worshiping dancing right um so like the idea that like people are like it's an hour that's great i'm like <laughs> this is like quick and dry you know um yeah that's funny i think a lot when, of that was nurtured by the european catholic experience many catholics that came here from europe were persecuted by different empires and monarchs and so forth so when they did worship it had to be done quickly oh. for example uh, they say the reasons why irish catholics don't sing it's because when the British uh, uh, was persecuting the Irish, they had to say mass secretly. So they had to do everything in whispers, but no singing. Oh, and some wow. went from generation to generation. It was brought over here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Catholicism in Europe, you know, outside of Italy, even in Spain, was ravaged by persecution. Mm -hmm. the groups people didn't have freedom to be catholic in many of those countries mm -hmm. 
Yes. And yeah. it, it's quite incredible to see how that has influenced the, the many shapes that a mask can take now um, between, you know, the gospel, the soul, and the Gregorian chant music, and, and even not having music sometimes during mass, and the completely different uh, soul-moving experiences that those things can provide. That's interesting, because I, it's funny, I always think of, like, Irish culture as being a particularly musical culture, right? Not, I mean, every culture is a musical culture, right? In the tavern. But it's fun. And I mean, it's true, right? Like, I mean, even many of the kind of songs that have become hymns now, right? Like, you talk to an Irish person who knows their history, they're like, yeah, that that was originally this other song, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I haven't thought about it from that perspective, but that's definitely an interesting insight. Another thing that we've done that I think um, helps make the celebration very, very special is inviting guest homilists. Um, Father Perry has... Bishop Perry, I'm sorry, has been a presider um, at our mass on several occasions. Uh, we've invited several people. Um, we've had um, guest deacons come and speak. Um, we've had um, professors from um, CTU come and speak. So that too helps bring um, maybe just an, another flavor, another um, perspective mm -hmm. to to the service, which. Um, just enriches the experience. As I, I think I myself, I consider myself a very new Catholic. I, I, I like to say that I'm like a baby Catholic sometimes mm -hmm. uh, to my friends uh, because uh, I didn't really uh, even start. I, I wasn't very religious until like the year before high school. And even in high school, you know, it, it's high school. You don't really understand many things. It's just all learning. And now in college, um, I have a chance to delve a little bit deeper. Um, and one of the things that I find myself doing more often is, uh, just like popping into a church if I happen to drive by it. Um, especially because I have a three hour drive to my university. Um, and I have been traveling a little bit more for, uh, the things that I'm doing, uh, for my education. Uh, I, I will, I will stop and pop by in, into a church because I see, and especially, I think it is also because of the career that I chose, um, because I'm studying civil engineering, and that has a lot to do with the structure and, and how to build buildings. And so churches naturally attract my attention. <laughs> uh -huh. But also seeing the differences in the, the communities and how the churches look within those communities has been a very, very eye-opening experience. I would imagine, especially as a civil engineer, you might have a particular appreciation for this, but I mean, so much of the theology of the church is expressed in the architecture of the church. And, you know, it's one of the more beautiful parts of being Catholic, right? Is that there's such a, there's such a depth and a breadth of thought, because I mean, even if you think about for much of human history, right? Literacy has been a rarity, has been a luxury. Mm -hmm right? To be able to read, yep. right? So how do you communicate the truths of the faith? Well, you do it in art, you do it in architecture, right? You communicate, you know, the, the kind of common journey we're all on by building the church in the shape of, yeah. you know, a ship, right? Um, you communicate, right? The, the holiness of the lives of the saints, right? Through stained glass, right? Like you, so there's, there's a, there's a beauty and a richness if you kind of, you know, you dive a little down the rabbit hole, right? That like yeah. <laughs> starts to, you know, explode in ways that are really cool and beautiful. Yvonne, before uh, we wrap the meeting up, um, would you please let us know where we can learn more about uh, Evanston area Black Catholics? Is there a website that we could perhaps reach? I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, the website that, um, the website at St. Nick's was um, upgraded, I guess, about two years ago, prior to the pandemic. And there were some, um, there was information on the site at that time. When the website was updated, I think some of that information was lost. So I have to admit, it's very difficult to find information about Evanston Area Black Catholics right now. So that is something I'm going to be working on, so that there's a clear um, listing of why we exist, what our goals are, what our mission is, and um, some of the things that we've been involved in. Um, over the years, uh, Margot did start 
relent group that I participated in. And we've kept that going. Um, after Lent is over, we've even had some Bible study. So anyone is welcome, you know, and they have an African-American focus and some of the um, reflective reflection materials that we used for Lent were prepared their um, disciples and missions. So prepared by African-American theologians in Chicago. I think Bishop Perry, you might know uh, who prepared those materials. But we've been meeting for at least 10, 15 years. So when Relent began, we had our own group and we have invited others to join and other people, other folks have joined us, have joined us over the years. So we'll continue to do that. Thank you very much. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that. I would like to thank everyone again uh, for taking your time, as, especially now that everything is so busy. Thank you for taking time out of, out of your day to be able to come uh, speak with us to be on this podcast. Um, Yvonne Smith, uh, Bishop Perry, and Samuel Carlson. Once again, thank you all. You're welcome. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having us. Thank you very much. If you're a bookworm, uh, then there is the book uh, Father Augustus Tolton, The Slave Who Became the First African American Priest. And that is by uh, it's Harold Burke Sivers. If you prefer things like Marvel Comics um, and you're looking to get a little bit of visual learning. Um, I know that the uh, the comic Bible is a thing. Uh, that was that I was very very surprised when I saw that, and it's really interesting. I think you should take take a look at it. Um, but you can also try rewatching even Marvel uh, Marvel films such as Black Panther, um, because according to some theologians, Black liberation ties well with the Marvel film. Um, that's mainly because of the issue of how liberation should be done brought by the conflict between the characters T'Challa and Killmonger. Um, while you watch the film, uh, you know, just think about little things, little differences in the concept, well, big differences in the concepts that these two characters present. And if you have any thoughts, you know, never be afraid to DM us uh, closed on Sunday podcast. Um, lastly, if you're new to Black theology and you prefer reading articles, I recommend that you give James H. Cohn's 1985 paper titled Black Theology in American Religion a read. This paper will give you some of the basics into this field and go further into what we didn't get to say in this episode. Once again, thank you everyone for taking time out of your day to be on this episode of the Close on Sunday podcast. Thank, thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode. You can find us on Instagram, link below. And listen to us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app.